coming to the end of our first day of retreat together. Feels like it's been a day that that we've lived well. Something very simple about just allowing things to slow down, allowing ourselves to be silent, and just bringing a presence to our body, to breath, to what's here in each moment. And be very satisfying and fulfilling about that. I noticed for me at the end of the day, although I've been a bit tired, just adjusting to the schedule, coming from some busyness, that there's a, a good feeling. The body feels appreciative of the attention, and the mind feels happy just to have this practice of gathering, simplifying, remembering essential. It's a good reminder that sometimes we feel that we we need more than we actually do for a sense of fulfillment. That it's important to remember that we can just return to something like receiving the body and the breath, return to refuge in awareness, and just receiving this moment, however it is, even if it's a struggle, even if it's dukkha or pain emotional turmoil, but often the, the difficulty is not what's happening, but a resistance to how it is. And suffering is not, not nearly um, so bad as we often imagine it is when we resist our experience. So just being able to open and receive, come to terms with our humanity, being here, something very, uh, feels very noble about it very satisfying. We began this morning with a bowing practice, just taking the whole body, bringing the head, the thinking mind, so many projects and ideas that we have, that we think about, and allowing that to touch the ground, encouraging this opening, this relinquishment, this offering up, this bowing, for uh, some people it's a bit strange or unfamiliar. Um, for others it feels very natural. For myself, I've always found this um, a practice or a, a mudra that speaks to me. It feels something very fundamentally um, profound in terms of a, it's, uh, the relationship to life. It's inner mudra, outer form of bowing. The very first thing that I saw uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Chardu, was to bow. I was on a retreat like this many years ago in a place called Oakenholt, outside of Oxford. And um, about the same number of people sitting together, practicing, the, uh, with, um, I think it was with John Coleman, one of the Ubakin teachers. And it's halfway through that retreat, Ajahn Chah had just arrived for the first time in England, about 1975, I think, 
and speak. And um, he walked into this hall of Westerners practicing. He'd never seen that hall of uh, Western lay people practicing so intently. He was very impressed by that. And he walked just down the middle of the hall, and there was in the corner. We didn't really know about shrines or Buddha statues. There was this rather grubby, dusty-looking Buddha statue that we just sort of shoved in the corner. And he went up to it and looked at it and just bowed. Very simple gesture. And I hadn't really seen anyone bow before in that way. And for me it was perhaps a very complete teaching. Something about this gesture. Just meeting life, meeting the moment, meeting a new situation with a bow. We can't always uh, bow in our daily life but we can inwardly hold that inner mudra of, of being willing to just in the bow is just an opening being willing to just open into what this moment is about what is here now whether it's peaceful and uh, wonderful with friends a lovely situation lovely weather beautiful food music lovely conversation, connection it's an easy thing to bow into to receive, to open, to melt with more difficult when we meet situations where there's anger, resistance blame, conflict something we feel shouldn't be here something that's happened that we don't want to have happened or natural feelings when we resist the way life presents things to us sometimes if we don't like and that's more challenging can we open to that can we receive that can we connect with that experience remember another story about buying which some of you may have heard but I like to tell it because it's it's, um, it's uh, really connected with this bowing when when there's a when there's conflict, anger, difficulty. It was one of the, when I was living in the monastery, one of the senior monks, um, Ajahn Anando, some of you may have met, he uh, died a few years ago of a brain tumor. He was a Vietnam vet. He'd been shot in the head and 25 years or so after that wound he developed cancer, their tumour. And within a, in a very short time with that um, taking effect uh, he, he died. Um, one of the <coughs> where he had been um, he had been asked to be a senior monk training other monks in the monastery and uh, one day he had uh, come across a situation where he was in conflict one of the monks that was, he was training was just really there's a lot of conflict between them and um, one day it reached a, a pitch point and, uh, it was, uh, quite, a, quite an argument and Ananda had been trained as a marine so he could feel this old conditioning rising up in him, wanting to hit this other guy. And uh, of course, as a monk, 
that's not in the Vinaya, it's not in the rule. Prohibitive. So you can feel what you like, but you can't, there, there are limitations or boundaries on what you can act out. And so he, he said, he had said to this other monk, well let's meet out on the front lawn and we'll sort this out. <laughs> uh, so they were standing there, you know, arguing, you could feel this energy rising and this going into a fist. And this old energy of the marine coming up, wanting to just bump this guy. Something you can all feel sometimes. And he said that as his hand came up, he just remembered his practice. So instead he brought his two palms together and went down into a full bow to this other monk. He blew them both away. They both uh, melted down by the crying. And didn't solve the conflict forever, but they had a moment of meeting in a different way. You know, we, we're not always in a situation where we can throw ourselves on the pavement and bow, but sometimes that inner willingness to just keep softening around places where it's that feel very tight, very righteous, very hard. So this bowing practice, doing every morning and just feeling what's it like to take the body through that movement to melt down into that form of the body bowing and coming up into a new moment and bowing and coming up to a new moment. Very, um, it's an outer expression of an inner quality that's very important on the um, path of practice. It supports our practice. One of the barometers, one of the virtues or blessings that are um, are very important to um, to cultivate. Not a, a, a virtue that's often taught very um, praisingly in our society. I mean, that is the the quality of renunciation, of being able to put things down, of being able to say no. I don't need to go here. I don't need to. Pick this up. I don't need to follow this. I don't need to have this. In an ironic sort of way, sometimes when we say no, we say yes to something else. We say yes to the fact that I feel complete in this moment. I don't need this right now. It's okay. I have enough. So in, the, in our daily life and in the practice of this samadhi, this gathering, this uh, gathering of a mental heart energy, focusing this quality of being able to put down, to turn away, to not have to pick up every thought, every movement, every desire, is important to, to cultivate, to consider. Even in the uh, story of the life story of the Buddha and his path, which we can see as an archetype in some ways, or we can see as literally true or historically true maybe, or a myth, however we like to see it, it's a story to us in many ways. And a story that's not that remote to our own unfolding. 
each aspect of the Buddha's life, we can see resonances in some ways with our own uh, path, our own practice, our own inquiry. And certainly there was a point in his journey where there was a, a very profound sense of renunciation, leaving one thing for the sake of picking up something else, leaving his home for the sake of inquiring and growing into a, another potential dimension of his being that wasn't possible in the situation or the environment he was within. Coming to retreat is a bit like that movement, not so radical as the, the movement that the Buddha made, leaving the palace, leaving the family, leaving the tribe, walking away, not out of uh, hatred, but out of a, a desire, an aspiration to, to inquire more deeply. Coming on the tree, there's that similar movement, moving away from the familiar, from that which is comfortable. And the journey, in a broader sense of the word, sometimes the journey of awakening takes us into places that are uncomfortable, away from the familiar, away from that which is uh, ground that we, territory that we know, are sure of. In the archetype of the Buddha story, he went to the forest. He went to the, the place where it wasn't inhabited by humans so much, maybe sages or ascetics. So if Jesus, he went to the desert. These are, these are, in a way, symbols of the kind of places we go to um, at the edge of new unfoldings, new growth, new possibility. There's a renunciation, there's something that's been let go of a door that maybe has even closed. We don't quite know what will open, maybe in the desert or in the forest, but this movement has happened, this, this uh, relinquishment, putting down. It's not an easy territory to negotiate. But as we can go through that movement different times of our life, and even more, more momentarily, as we practice it in a more subtle way in our meditative life, we can get to learn to trust the movement. We know that when we let go, it allows us for a possibility for something else to emerge. Perhaps can't emerge when we're holding on to our, what we feel is our comfort or our limitations. This renunciation, this is not just, sometimes it sounds like life denying, you have to give everything up. It, um, the bean sprouts and uh, wear a rag, don't have a bank account, you know, don't have any wealth. We can interpret it in a very uh, literal and simplistic way, but in fact it's much more subtle than that. Uh, even if one has a bowl and a robe and leaves a, a renouncement life, there's still all sorts of other things that one can become um, attached to his status and one's place, one's power, one's comfort. It's natural that happens. So it's not necessarily that outer renunciation can help us more inwardly um, hold that inner simplicity. It's not necessarily equate that because one maybe has possessions, 
family, wealth, and that one can't also practice this inner mudra. In fact, in some um, teachings, they talk about even if one had fame, success, wealth, power, possessions, properties, family, not to say one should deny that or push that away, but to hold it as if it is a dream in a way, to know that ultimately these things, although they're there, we can use them, we're part of them, they're part of us, that we can't ultimately hold or possess or keep these things. We can hold that inner perspective that keeps us into that, it keeps us with the heart of Dharma. So to put down, to, to carry this quality of renunciation, to contemplate it in our daily lives and also in our meditation when we come to sit here cultivating samadhi, learning to put down some things for the sake of picking up others. In the classical rendition of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness, he talks about going to a place to practice that's secluded and putting down grief and hankering for the world. Learning to put that down. There's something in our minds sometimes where we feel if we're not busy worrying and thinking about things then we're not doing our duty somehow. We should be sitting here worrying about our families or our society, our work, what's happening to the world around us. And these are important things to be concerned about. There's plenty to worry about nowadays in the globe. But sometimes worrying heedlessly or worrying unconsciously is not the most healthy relationship to have to, to the world around us. Becoming grief-stricken and overwhelmed with anxiety and conscious habits of worry not being able to put down anything. So this, this training of samadhi is, is in a way so we've been encouraging a relaxation, an opening, a softening. It's always balanced with a certain quality of application or attentiveness or focus. So, so there is an edge to it. So there is a sort of a, an aspect to it that uh, demands, I hate to use the word discipline because we have so many negative connotations of that, but it demands a certain kind of focus. And part of that is this ability to just put things down, to let things be, to allow the mind to turn from its occupations, from its proliferations, from its worries, from its concerns, from its projects and ambitions. takes a certain trust. We become very addicted to our thinking and it's hard for us to just trust space and silence. Nothing much happening. We feel that we're not alive if we're not 
and busy thinking about something. So learning to access a part of our being that's not just busily thinking, planning, but it's just being, just being here, just present, just aware, spacious, quiet, nothing much happening. And picking up, putting things down, putting some things down and picking up other things consciously. What do we pick up in this training of samadhi, this aspect of the past, cultivation of meditation? Being able to pick up our energy, our effort, which is connected very much with desire, where we want to go. Sometimes, again, our desire is very unconscious. We tend to get pulled around by what we think we want and what we think we don't want in a very unconscious way. I want to go for a cup of tea and the next thing we're pulled over there. We were going to the walking path and then the next thing we're at the tea and then the next thing we wander off somewhere else. There's always this, this kind of unconscious sometimes movement pushing us and pulling us. It's not that that energy is a negative energy or something we need to crush, we need that energy, but sometimes we don't focus it in a way that can support well-being and support our aspirations. So learning to recognize desire or movement or energy and where, where is it moving us, where does it move us? Is it very driven? We often associate our aspiration, our energy, body, our desire, body is often very driven. I know I can get very driven by things that have to happen, things that I need to do, projects that I need to get going. And you can get into a state where one's either driven or collapsed. You get driven for a while, you go through the day and then one, at the end of the day or when something is done, you just collapse, find your energy body just can collapses into a heap, goes into dullness, into negativity, into self-doubt and worry. So finally, can we find a balance, can we find a way of working with our energy where there's something, some middle ground, some consciousness, some sustainability, some way that it can focus in a way that can support our aspirations. So in the way of supporting this practice of samadhi, the energy, effort, the effort is to avoid, really, things that lead to a lack of well-being. Learning how to, similar to this renunciation, learning how to avoid that which leaks our energy away, disperses us, or creates a, a negative sense of self learning to turn away, learning to avoid that. And in the, in the mind, learning not to habitually follow negative thought patterns. I just, perhaps sometimes we don't have the power just to turn away, they just have so much momentum, but just being able to recognize them more clearly 
and realizing there's a space here. Maybe I'm sitting here feeling hopeless. This isn't working. I should be, you know, I'm not going to be able to complete this retreat. I'm feeling resistance. It's just actually, in a way, it's just a thought pattern. It's a mind moment. It's a an energy pattern gets projected onto the situation around. But it becomes a reality. It becomes who we are. And what motivates is what tends to draw us in a certain direction. Learning to just see that creates space around it. You know, there's awareness around that. So that we can avoid the habitual dwelling in that which doesn't really support well-being. Learning to recognize, to discern the mental states, what supports well-being, what detracts. Can we, in just, sometimes these patterns are so deep, we're in them, we don't even see them, but sometimes we can just see the edges of them. And we're not necessarily following them, we're just containing, we're just holding them, we're just creating space and awareness, we're receiving them in a different way. We're generating energy in a way where it's not being dispersed, habitual patterns of worry or self-doubt, undermining, sabotaging our well-being. Learning to connect today with doing something very simple, generating energy around something that's very natural, very peaceful, very soothing, it's working with breath. We're learning to connect, to bring attention to that which is wholesome, which is blameless, childlike, almost. It takes um, a humble and patient mind to be with the breath. You can feel now this isn't, this is too simple a practice. Children do this. I want something more sublime, more esoteric, more academic, more profound. It's interesting to to note that actually in the sutras, this is the practice most frequently talked about. This was the favoured practice of the Buddha. This is the practice that he did on the night of his enlightenment. For Anapana. Sati, mindfulness of the inhalation and the exhalation, being with in-breath and out-breath. It's almost absurd that it's so simple. You think, surely in the night of the Buddha's enlightenment you must have been doing some amazing esoteric speech of um, high tantric teaching. He was just sitting there watching his breath, being with his breath. It got very, very peaceful. Allow the breath, allow the energy, aspiration, focus, the attention to gather around something very soothing, very calming, very grounding. It's the breath. I'd like to read a little bit from the Buddha himself in relationship to this practice. 
There is a case where a monk, having gone to the wilderness to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building, sits down, folding his legs crosswise, holding his body erect, and setting mindfulness to the fore. Always mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. So there you have a practice, very simple. This renunciation, turning away, going to a secluded place as we have here in the retreat, sitting down, just tuning into the breath. Breathing in long, he discerns he is breathing in long. Breathing out long, he discerns he is breathing out long. Breathing in short, he discerns he is breathing in short. Or breathing out short, he discerns he is breathing out short. Nothing too complicated in that. Sometimes it is translated in different ways. Sometimes it is translated as actually knowing is the breath long or is the breath a short breath, a shallow breath. Sometimes the breath gets very subtle when the mental, the future, the heart, mental energy is gathered. Sometimes the breath becomes so subtle one can hardly feel it. And the, the wire that to the air element, the breath element, is more vibrational. You feel it as a subtle vibration in the body rather than strong inhalation and exhalation. So sometimes this is meant by the short breath, something very subtle. Sometimes long, we can feel the breath is really, and we can deliberately, sometimes as we were this morning, just help steady the mind to taking a very deliberate, long breath. But sometimes naturally the breath is long. Another way that's translated is that we might in our practice, with our attention, hold a short breath means just to note at one point where the breath touches. Maybe in the abdomen, maybe the chest, maybe a subtle sensation at the nostril. The breath might be long or short, but we hold a short range of focus. Noticing where the breath, that helps to stabilize the attention when the mind is fairly settled. If we try and do that when the mind is quite dispersed, busy, restless, then we tend to struggle. So then holding a long breath, being with a long breath, maybe we just feel the whole of the breath, body. So we're not trying to just concentrate the mind into narrow a space, but just holding the whole of the body, the whole of the breath body, with the energy of turbulence, restlessness, resistance, whatever's present. So knowing the long, knowing the short breath, Training oneself to breathe in sensitive to the entire body and to breathe out sensitive to the entire body. Breathing in calming bodily fabrication, here he uses translation for sankara, which means patterning, calming the body's habits, patterning that we experience, to breathe out calming body patterning. So here, there's never any mention in the suttas of when being with breath that it's disassociated from being with body. The two are always together, being with body, being with breath. And using the breath, allowing the focus around the breath to calm, to suffuse, to awaken, enliven, become sensitive within the body. The body is becoming sensitized or sensitive to this body. Training oneself 
Breathing in, sensitive to rapture. We use this word piti, translates rapture, which can also mean ease, peacefulness, joyfulness, sensitive to rapture. Trains in, breathing in, sensitive to pleasure. Breathing out, sensitive to pleasure. So in this um, meditation of the samadhi, it's really about learning to access that which is pleasant, that which is well-being, that which is joyful, not dependent upon one of the five senses that we usually depend on to stimulate us in a pleasant way. Pleasant taste or sound or sight or smell or thought. These thoughts of thinking mind having you know, um, lucid and subtle thoughts. Here with the body, it's with the access to well-being, to pleasure, the sense of ease is actually within the body itself. It's connected to the body awareness itself. It's connected to bringing attention into the body, being with body. I think this can't be emphasised enough when we, as meditators, because we have, I think, such tendencies um, in the West to be so disembodied, so unease in our bodies so dislocated and disassociated from our body experience and for all sorts of um, psychological reasons. But um, this practice is really, and then sometimes we can pick up meditation practice and get these notions of non-attachment and re-emphasize a split that's already there. And we find it uncomfortable to be with feeling, to be with body. Um, but there's nowhere in the suttas that it mentions you know, splitting away from the body. Just a lot of this, this practice of being with breath is very body-based, and actually using the body as a base of pleasure. Of this word pity, which means to feel joy. The mind and body, when they're unified through the breath, working with the breath, the mind suffuses rather than the mind, the mental energy being so distracted dispersed, it begins to integrate and connect and be filled with body, body with mind. The breath is the bridge and the experience is uh, ease, peace, joy, fullness, energetic fullness. So this is a practice of healing, of, of filling. Sometimes they, in the scriptures they use, use the word drenched, drenched, being drenched, being filled with, saturated. Diffuse these kind of words give you um, a, a feeling for this experience of samadhi. And then he goes on breathing out, this sensitizing, breathing in, this calming and then the steadying, using the breath to help steady the mental energy. Training oneself, breathing in, focusing on impermanence. Breathing out, focusing on impermanence. Training oneself, breathing in, focusing on dispassion. Literally the translation means the fading, noticing that as things move and change leads to a sense of dispassion. It's not a, a negative, it's a very peaceful uh, quality of the mind. Breathing in, breathing out, but the mind focuses on relinquishment. So this, this 
this is just going through briefly this uh, piece of the sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya that this practice naturally supports the ability to, to renounce or to relinquish because it enables us to access an inner fauna, an inner sense of well-being. And it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> it doesn't mean we have to go anywhere particular. It's something we can always access here and now because the very support for this are the body and, body and the breath and the mind, quality of attention. So attention, bringing attention into each moment, supports samadhi, supports the attention with the quality of effort or energy, the application, focusing our aspiration, our desire to support that in a conscious way. Being able to trust the process of not having to always um, slavishly follow thought patterns, thinking, habits, distractions, but learning to put things down, learning to say to the mind, if the mind's really preoccupied with a worry, concern, something about work or family or financial situation, whatever it is, we can promise the mind, we can think all we like about that later. We can dwell on it later. But for this moment, just putting it down. For the sake of being able to simplify, come into contact with this practice of being with breath, being with body. This story to finish with from the Buddha's life again, which is very useful to reflect on in terms of how it speaks to us in our practice, in our life. After the um, Buddha had left the palace, Maladi was leaving that which is comfortable. And he uh, undertook his uh, inquiry. His question was, is there anything that transcends birth and death? He was led to his inquiry by a deep insight into impermanence. He really saw very profoundly the nature of samsara, the nature of this world we are within. uh, is that it's always uh, becoming otherwise, it's always changing. There's nothing ultimately that stable. It's led to a very profound inquiry, just seeing this impermanence through aging and sickness, death, something we see, each of us, but it doesn't often penetrate so deeply that it brings about this inquiry, we're very descended. It's really uh, opening ourselves to deeply consider the shifting sands that we create our lives upon. So when the Buddha saw this and it penetrated deeply into his heart, he said the vanity of youth left him. The vanity of thinking that we're always going to be here in this form, in this shape, in this situation. Something with this passion really... Um, became apparent to him 
And so it led to this inquiry, well, is there anything that transcends this realm of birth and death? Is there any stability? And so this question took him out of the palace and into the forest and into profound ascetic practices. He felt that perhaps the way to enlightenment was to to crush pleasure, all the things that had been pleasurable to him. He'd been before very involved with um, seeking the pleasant, as we often are in our lives. When something's uncomfortable, moving to that which is comfortable or pleasant for us different holiday homes that he had, different sensory experiences, beautiful people, the kind of life we all like. This is the kind of life that he had. I think in our culture nowadays we have so much power to shift the scene if we don't like it, if it becomes uncomfortable. We can just push a button and things change. Change the screen something else. So in this um, realizing that actually he had uh, lived in this illusory illusion really of, of this present, present abiding being something that was going to profoundly satisfy him, he went to the opposite extreme. He thought, well maybe if I crush that which is pleasurable, crush the body, crush my desires, then that's the path awakening. Don't eat anything, don't desire anything, don't have anything much to do with his body. And so he took the path of six hard years of, of asceticism. I mean he did, he was just <coughs> also an archetype of the, of, the, of the fact that the process of awakening isn't a, a tea party. <laughs> There's some real struggle in it, even for the Buddha, who presumably had enormous barometer, enormous blessing. But he became so weak and so um, frail that he could hardly stand up, trying to um, just push away the experience of form, the experience of the world, and hoping that somehow he could catapult his consciousness above the world of form, which is always bringing him down. And at a certain point, after pursuing this path and realizing it wasn't really getting him to um, the insight that he needed, the insight that would bring understanding and liberation, he had a memory. And it was a very important memory. He had a memory of when he was a child. And the memory was when he was uh, a child, he was at a, a festival, village festival. And... Um, village was out there doing its thing, celebrating, and he just withdrew from the festival. The young boy went to sit under a tree. wasn't pushing away the festival, just naturally wandered off and went to sit under a tree, and he started to just sit there very simply, being with breath, being with breath, breathing in, breathing out, and the attention, the focus in the present, doing what we've been doing today noticing perhaps that there's something else here besides just thinking and wanting and not wanting and moving and restlessness there's a quality of presence quality of awareness, peacefulness when you choose to notice it and as he was practicing this he experienced pleasure 
experience a profound sense of joy, just being immersed in his own being, just the pleasure of his own being, a wellspring of, of joy and fullness. And he thought to himself, this is a pleasure that one doesn't need to be afraid of. This is a pleasure that leads in a way, leads one on in a way that is wholesome, that is conducive to well-being, that's conducive to enlightenment, conducive to awakening. It's not a pleasure uh, that leads to um, despair or disappointment disenchantment. So then with that memory of the child, he took that memory to the Bodhi tree and began to practice like that, that memory of the child, the child being with breath, with the memory was the, the key really to a way through and from the extremes of just getting distracted and lost or the extreme of struggle and denial and repression. This is a very useful, I think, image for us, the image of the child, the mind, the heart of the child, something very open, something very receptive, something just able to be here with how it is in this moment. Each breath, breathing in and breathing out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.